Hello and welcome to Phil's Photography Journey podcast, episode 29. And this is a very special episode with a very special guest, uh, my friend and ex-colleague, Chris Ward, Chris J. Ward Photography, is joining us today. Uh, I have mentioned this on previous shows and he's going to talk to us about what ended up being an absolutely fantastic trip to Chernobyl. So I will hand over to Chris for a brief interview and uh, then we will get going. So Chris, hi. Um, I think actually health warning in more ways than one. We both got a bit of a, I've got a frog in my throat. Chris is on the back of a chest infection and cold. So uh, that, that's for free, special effects. Uh, but no, we'll apologize, but there might be the odd splutter. Anyway, over to you, Chris. Tell us about yourself and, uh, and then we'll get going on the tour. Hi, Phil. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, been looking forward to this one. We've talked about it for a, a few weeks, and um, looking forward to sharing my experience uh, with my trip to Chernobyl. Uh, my photography background, really, I've been taking um, the digital pictures for I don't know ten, twelve years now, and um, all sorts um, over that time, and particularly. Um, since I, I uh, left work uh, a couple of years ago, I've done uh, mainly landscapes, but I've done weddings, uh, portraits, uh, anything really that, that is interesting and challenging at the same time. And, and challenging is the, the operative word there for, for my photography. And, uh, and of course, picked up some awards along the way as well, Chris. Uh, a couple of a couple of um, awards, and um, not, uh, <laughs> uh, I can still do better. Uh, it's always learning and. Um, it's quite nice that people do appreciate your, your photography as you go along. So, yeah, and, and hopefully uh, they'll appreciate uh, some of the pictures that I took uh, over in uh, Ukraine and uh, Kiev and Chernobyl. Indeed. And I think, you know, the timing of that trip was great in terms of the the Sky Atlantic uh, mini-series, I guess we call it. It was a series. Uh, probably one of the finest pieces of TV I've seen in many a year. And I think very quickly that show went to the top ranking show on IMDb, which is no small accolade when you think of the content that's out there. So I think, Chris, because that was probably all in our collective minds, you know, those of us who followed it avidly, uh, when when I saw that you'd um, you'd been very fortunate to make a or to, to get on a trip out there, uh, it, it sort of all joined up very nicely. So I guess, firstly, how did it come about? Well, it, it came about for a very um, good and old friend of mine, um, David Gibbs. He, uh, we've known each other for some sort of 40 years um, and both been interested um, in um, the post-disaster information that's been coming out. And as you say, the Chernobyl series uh, on TV um, ignited that interest. And uh, he, as his want, um, searches for nice little weekends away and trips and so on, and found a, a, an amazing deal on Groupon, believe it or not. And um, for a four-day trip, return flight to hotel, and including the day trip to actually out to the disaster area in Chernobyl, come to about three hundred and fifty pounds. So that, uh, that's, up. that's pretty good, isn't it? So just so that says at what September twenty nineteen is it? So just just yeah, to put a timestamp right. on it, put, uh, that's that's great value. And, and they were offering that over a, a period of four months, and you can take a, a couple of nights or up to five or six nights. I think we took the, the four the four nights four day trip, um, and it was amazing value, and uh, we got exactly what we uh, were expecting. Um, but it was it was a fantastic few days. And hopefully I can share some of that information now. Yeah, no, that'd be great. And, you know, try and, I guess, take people on a bit of a tour of either <clears throat> the medium of listening and podcasting. Uh, obviously, you you recorded it both on a sort of journal and and in terms of, you know, images, uh, which is your thing. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the best way we can share that as well, Chris, make sure that that's, you know, public and all that sort of stuff. Um, sure. But yeah, so, so, it, you, so you found the deal. And David and yourself, and you know, paid your money, and and then it was it was off. So, in terms of things like um, you know, travel time. So you, you were flying from what was that from? 
one of the London airports, I assume, because you're. I think we can stand it. Ryanair flight <clears throat> was included in the package, so if you wanted to put extras, that was the, yeah. <laughs> the typical Ryanair. You'd have to pay extras, which we did do, because I don't like my kit photography kit going in the hole. No. Um, but uh, for a four-hour trip, I wasn't going to a four-day trip. I wasn't going to get all of my kit and the necessary. Uh, clothes, etc., into an online, uh, an onboard bag. So, so we paid extra for that, but that's usual with with that type of flight. But yeah, um, about a, a four a four hour flight from Stansted over to to Kiev and uh, private car, uh, which is, again was all included to to our um, city centre hotel. And just quickly, um, Chris, on 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 the kit, what what gear did you take with you? Um, I tried to keep it light. Um, because of the, the restrictions. Um, so I, at the time, I'm, I've got a Nikon D800 um, and the D, D750. Uh, I took the 750 with me this time um, with about four lenses and a, a carry-round lens, which um, allows me to do all sorts of um, distance and close-up photography at 28 to, to 300. But I also had a couple of prime lenses, a 35mm and 50mm. That's the, mm-hmm. They're the main ones that I took on, on, on the trip. But the 28 to 300 allows you to to get in close if you need to be or get the wide angle as well. So it's a really yeah, good carry you, round then. Yeah, I guess, you know, you, <clears throat> you can feel confident you're going to get the shot. And then I guess if you wanted to be a bit more creative, you've got the 35 and 50 primes to to, to use in, in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. So, um, yeah, um, arriving uh, on, I think the, the date we went out was... Um, 14th, uh, 11th of September to 14th of September. Um, and so we had a, a, an afternoon effectively just to get our um, bearings from the hotel and to uh, change up some cash into their uh, currency, which you can't get over here, and um, prepare for the next day, really, because it's the next day that the um, trip out to Chernobyl uh, was taking place. Um, we had to meet at the main railway station and you had to make sure that you had your passport and uh, ID with you, uh, everything that you were taking. Plus, uh, they were insistent that you wear long trousers, clothing shoes and long sleeve shirts. So no, you know, no skin visible, if you like. What, what, what was your thought process at that point? <laughs> um, my, my thought process was at good safety uh, uh, commentary um, not unexpected but at the same time I've done a bit of research before the trip and the areas that you're going to be exposed in um, and this is what the, the guides tell you and what and if you look online the amount of radiation that you're going to be exposed in for, for the number of hours that we were going to be there was no more different than you get in any large city around the world yeah so, uh, and, and that's important to, to recognise. You're not really going to be exposed uh, to any um, any hot spots for any length of time. I think that's important to say. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were very strict on, on that, um, and including themselves. And um, meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning, um, and which turned out to be a 13-hour round trip, um, made for a long day, but... Uh, uh, you, you don't um, you don't feel that it's that long a day because you're going through so much. Um, I mean, the, the, the actual getting to Chernobyl took around about two hours itself. They did a couple of you know um, stops on the way for water and, and comfort stops, etc., uh, to get you to the uh, thirty-kilometer exclusion zone. Um, so that's the Sorry to interrupt, Chris. The the, <clears throat> the obviously they said about taking your passports and papers. So th- this is all within the same country that you're travelling, but it's just additional requirements of of going to that particular area, is it? Yeah, and again, and that's the important part. When you come to the exclusion zone, um, that is guarded. Um, they look like military personnel that are guarding you, mm. and they then take all the paperwork from uh, the guides that we have. And double check that. So they they check and they check your passport against yourself, and then you get issued um, a radiation detector um, as well that you hang around your neck just to make sure um, that you 
you didn't go into any particular hotspots or didn't go anywhere near uh, any particular areas that were you shouldn't have been. And would that thing automatically alert then, Chris? Would that would that give you an audible warning or something if you if you strayed? I, I don't think there's an audible warning, but they when they when it, when you get back, they, you know, when you come out at the end of the day, um, they then double check that to make sure you haven't been exposed oh, I see. Uh, to, to anything. So, but that um, detector is logged against your name, your passport, etc., um, just to make sure that they're getting the right uh, information from the right for the, against the right person. Yeah. Good. And just one other thing in terms of, you know, people who may want to go on the trip. So what about provisions? You mentioned about stops for water and stuff like that. Are you able to, to are you required to take food with you then just for, because obviously if it's a long um, trip? No, um, lunch was included okay. in the trip. Um, you, you can, I think you can take, they, they, I think water is obviously one of the essentials that you can take. Mm. Um, I think they they'd rather you didn't take food and stuff, but anything you take in, you must take out with you. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a sort of general rule. But lunch was included in the trip as well, and um, we actually ate in the um, canteen that all the current workers in the in the disaster area also, uh, you know, uh, had their food as well. Yeah. So uh, very look, I would say very. Russian utilitarian type canteen, and you can imagine that yourself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but but the food was fine. Um, no different. Um, you know, it's it pretty good stuff that you can get anywhere in Ukraine. Um, some of the national dishes, but also just ordinary food that we we get here as well. Mm. So yeah, sandwiches and um, you know, hot food, but you can also have the the borscht and um, uh, chicken, etc. That uh, is a sort of national dishes there as well. And were there? Um... I was going to say Chicken Kiev, perhaps, but uh, were, were there uh, a number of different tours going on? Obviously, you <clears throat> you had your one, but you, you, were you part of a wider group that was under this deal, for, for argument's sake? And then there was um, other groups from other countries, maybe? Or In, in, in our group, it was, it's your minibus. Um, the minibus can take about 12, 15 people. I think there was about 10 on ours. Um, and I think there were three minibuses that went, but they were different. They were marked up as different tours. Right. But they all travelled down together. Um, we saw um, in the queue, queue to get in, it wasn't a big queue, four or five vehicles. Um, and a couple of those were private cars with private cars. So you can do it privately if you want to. Yeah. But it was, there weren't masses of people um, in terms of um, uh, going in there. And it is a, it's a very big area. So it, you're, you're not going to come across too many. I think... Outside of that, we saw maybe two or three other tours, and that's sort of ten people per tour. Good. But going going back to the TV series, I think that has highlighted that these tours are available because it's not something that you look for when you're looking for trips. Um, and they said over the past couple of years, around seventy thousand people have taken up um, the, these tours, and it is a it's beginning to be a bigger tourist. Um, industry for Ukraine in here. Yeah, and obviously you'll, you'll come on to the to the work that's been done there, and and that probably lends itself to why people would be a bit more positive about going there now than maybe they would have done even sure. as recent as five years ago when they hadn't fully done the work. I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's a nice structured day. So you, did you know in advance the kind of. The, the areas you were going to cover was it was there kind of an itinerary or, or was it you just went with the guide and they they you know they you knew they were going to cover your all the all the uh, all the all the sites as it were. No, there was there was no set itinerary <laughs> other than knowing that you'd go to the the thirty k exclusion zone and then um, closer in you then obviously getting into there. There's a ten k exclusion zone and again it's the same check another checkpoint you actually have to stop. And you are, are checked again uh, before you go through. And not just us, but the minibuses and, and anything that's on the minibuses inside and out of it is all checked with um, Geiger counters and, and that sort of thing, making sure that you haven't gone off piece, I would imagine. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it, it's very thorough uh, and very, um, very military. Yes. Always great. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
but they're all good about it, you know, and, and you're all, everybody's taking the right precautions and so on. So it's, it's, it's what you'd expect, but no, no real um, agenda in terms of what you'd likely to see. A lot of it for me, I had, you know, in the past, because I had an interest, had a look at online photos and uh, the odd YouTube video coming out now as well of people who have done cause. Yes. And of course, there's been the odd, um, uh, you know, music video and that sort of thing that's come out of there as well in recent times. So I, I, I had an expectation of what I'd like to see, but not necessarily what I was going to see. Right. Um, so, so where, what, what was the first main exploration area? So the, the first area we went to was literally straight up to um, reactor number four, which was where the disaster took place. Mm -hmm. um, and the new, um, fairly new sarcophagus, as they call it, uh, that had been placed over the top of it. I mean, at, at the time, um, the sarcophagus, I mean, it looks like a huge aircraft hangar um, that's been uh, placed over the top of it. But it had to be built away from uh, the actual the reactor and then moved over the top of it. And so at the time, it was one of the biggest buildings in the world, movable buildings in the world. And that's because they still couldn't actually uh, get close to it and get built over, over the top of it in a normal building um, type arrangement. Yeah. The, Literally, just slide it across the top. And, and that, I guess, if, if people look it up now that's going to be something they'll, they'll probably see as the main picture and obviously you will see the originals as well but there was a program on shortly after the series i think it might have been after the series finished and and it was all about the detail of how they did that and what a feat that was i think it was funded by almost every country in the world um certainly those with the most interest in in having it secure but the work that went into it and the you know, the design of it and how they achieved it and also how they had to make it future-proof to a degree or the best they could to avoid future metal decay and, you know, corrosion and all that sort of stuff, let alone the, the well, it was like a template, wasn't it? So, you know, they had to slide this in place over what was there because, like you say, they couldn't touch it and then kind of yep. seal up as they, as they went at the end of it. Uh, so it's almost, it's quite a, um, from obviously I've only seen the images and online and stuff, but it, it looks like a, a huge kind of monu monument of, of its of some power, some stature. Uh, now you know, almost like a new, a new, uh, completely new uh, item on the landscape. It is. It, it, it's, it's an amazing structure, and and actually, uh, we were surprised how close we could get to it. Mm. There's obviously um, fencing and, and and so on around it, but. Um, we we did drive up to there is a, um, a shared car park if you like because there are maintenance crews work there yeah on site obviously and um, you, you can get reasonably close and as you can see if you if you check if you look at my pictures there are pictures there uh, and you can see uh, how close we could get uh, not only that but um, there are uh, wildlife and, and things like that in the area. And uh, I think it's quite famously known that there are uh, a number of um, what they call wild dogs, but they're not really wild in the sense of, um, you know, they attack people. They're, they're, they're well looked after, but they just live in the area. And uh, I've got a couple of pictures of those just literally right by the site. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing how clean and um, how non-disaster it looks in, yeah. in that sense around that sarcophagus area. So how long how long were you allowed to spend in that particular area? We probably spent about an hour there, mm. um, walking around, and the guys explaining to us um, what went on and, uh, the, and and showing us um, the other parts to that, which um, and how close the other reactors were. If you if you think back to the series and so on, I think they had to do a lot of work to stop the reactor number four. Um, disaster hitting number three. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the fascinating information um, that was passed on, something I didn't know before going there was, or even in the series, was that uh, they had built four reactors. Uh, number four, number five, and number six were also un 
partially built. Uh, you'll see in some of the pictures that there's a, a cooling tower between five and six that was built and ready to be used. Um, and they've actually explained to us that over over time, they were looking to build 12 reactors on that site. Wow. Yeah, that's not something I've you know found too much information on. Um, this is what the guides were telling us, so I can't you know I can't verify that, and I'm not sure. You know, I've not seen any books that I've personally got myself, but it is a huge, huge area, and you could see that um, the potential for for uh, building more um, more of those uh, reactors uh, was, was available to them, and, and the fact that they built a purpose-built city, Kripkiat, which we'll come to shortly, um, to house all the workers and to house all the scientists and and that it was a very modern-day city, purpose-built. Um, you could see that they were doing um, big things in that area. Yeah, so it, the scene is set there, isn't it, because you've got so many of the workers, firefighters and that kind of thing uh, that were based there because it was a city built to support you know the the power plant, and I, and I think I'm uh, not sure if this is something that perhaps I read alongside that that being shown, but it was quite in 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 terms of comparison with the rest of uh, USSR, it was quite a kind of higher status uh, standard living there in Pripyat. Uh, so, uh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. So so that was that yeah. was that was kind of the next next stop, was it, Chris, from the reactor and. and what sort of distance away was the the, the sort of purpose-built city compared to the actual reactor where the incident happened? I thought it was only about sort of twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes, you know, drive mm. to where we stopped. But it, it, it's quite—you you can't actually see anything now because they've left the forests and the, the fields and, and things like that to grow. So over the past thirty plus years. Um, Nature has begun to um, reclaim a lot of the land that would have otherwise um, been cleared in normal daily life. Yeah. So it, 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 a lot of what you travel through within the 30-kilometer zone is forest. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess that over time would have been the areas that they would have cleared. And it, and it was the vast area that um, housed the, the, the reactors plus, plus this new, new city. But yeah, so 20, 25 minutes or so um, to where we parked up. And again, you're parking in a forest. Um, and then they start taking you through uh, to, to the walking tour part of the, uh, the trip. And was there a, a feeling of, I don't know, eeriness, I suppose, you know, from this once thriving city, a uh, new city, um, to, to the fact that now nature has taken it over and you're wandering through... I guess what was and what might have been, because I, I guess it it may have even grown as a city, perhaps if they were planning all those additional reactors. Yeah, it it, it was a very strange atmosphere. I think somebody asked me when I came back and said, "What, what you know, what what was it like uh, as, as you are now?" And I described it as, as weird in the first sense, in that you rarely see a city that's just stood still. Yeah. And then allowed nature to take it back. Certainly, a modern city, uh, anyway. Yeah, we obviously historically see a lot of them, don't you? But yeah, yeah. Um, from my curiosity point of view, it's absolutely brilliant because I never thought I'd be able to go to a place like that, be able to walk around it, albeit in a very controlled way. So you know, from a fascinating point of view, it was it was there. And then, um, and this might seem a bit strange, but quite inspiring. Um, in terms of all those that contributed to the disaster recovery, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the firefighters and the liquidators, as they called them, uh, they kept going uh, despite knowing the likely consequences that saved millions of lives. Um, and very poignant uh, monuments. There are a few monuments around, and, and again, there's, there's pictures of those, but those that uh, for the firefighters and the miners that were there uh, who... They, they self-titled it to those who saved the world, uh, which was paid for and made by the Chernobyl firefighters themselves. It's a very poignant uh, place to visit. Um, but it is it's unlike anything else that I've ever been to or that I'm likely to ever go to. Yeah, because, you know, for that 
that small-ish uh, city, the the impact, while it was felt across Europe, there was actual you know uh, implications of it across Europe in terms of the way the the weather took the you know the sort of, I suppose fallout for want of a better term maybe that is the right term um, and and you know the, there was no there no resting on the laurels in terms of what they had to do and and I guess this is also against a, a certain political backdrop at the time in terms of the regime and the perhaps controlled way of communicating information and you know so that they, they were fighting against a lot and I think you know if if what we saw in that series or what we maybe read about it is true it was almost that people just said guys you know or, or in their minds you know we've got to roll up our sleeves and just deal with this <laughs> you know there's forget all the politics and stuff we, we've got to fix this um and people obviously did give their lives to to to, to achieve that really so yeah yeah and, and again that was shown quite um you know, well in the series, and and I think there are other programs um, that if you look online, uh, YouTube, etc., um, that you can view, which are much more documentary, yeah, um, that also covers some of that. And I would recommend um, people, if they're interested, search for those because then you can actually uh, compare the series and and what was around uh, from the documentaries as well, and and see how well that was made. I think. So, so in terms of some of the within the city, uh, there there are certain areas, I guess, that that have been shown on either the YouTube videos or or whatever. So, so did you get to see those? Um, I, I remember one. There was the supermarket. There was amusement park and things like that. So, did you did you get to have a as part of this? This is the walking tour, Chris, wasn't it? So you, you were able yeah. to to take all of those various sites that we we so, see. So- we did, yeah. So, so just a quick bit of background on, on Pripyat itself. So there were uh, some 43,000 people uh, working there at the time. Um, and during the early part of um, the disaster uh, taking place, all these, all those were evacuated. Um, so, and, and that was all taking place. Those 43,000 took about three days just to get everybody out and they were allowed just one bag. So if, if you if you take it that you you've got a, a small city that had all these people in uh, and then told literally overnight you're leaving, uh, what do you take with you? So you can then just imagine what people left behind as well. Indeed, and, and were and they then, were they told that it would be a short term thing, which is why why to only take one bag? Is that, is I, that true? I, I don't think they were told much. To oh. be honest, uh, <clears throat> I, I think you know that a lot of people thought it, it could be a short term thing and they'd be allowed back. Um, but then they would disperse throughout the Soviet Union at the time yeah. um, to to many, you know, not even close. Some people were moved, you know, thousands of miles uh, to to be rehoused, and that includes the other sixty eight thousand people that were evacuated from the thirty kilometer exclusion zone, a bit further down the line. Um, one of the other interesting commentary was that from our guides was that not everybody were evacuated. Not everybody was told about it, wow. because the the communication from TV, radio, etc., was non-existent. Mm. So if that was your only communication, um, they weren't even told that literally just down the road from them there was this big um, uh, disaster taking place. And in fact, they said some people never did leave. Um, two to three hundred of them have, have lived there uh, and still live there since. Wow. I must admit, I didn't know that. I thought it was, you know, a complete kind of sweep and, uh, you know, military involved and get everyone out regardless. But, uh, well. At the time, I think that was the case, but a few people then managed to get back. Where where it's quite a wide exclusion zone, if they're in these very tiny little villages within that, they they, they managed to work their way back and and live there now. And I think that... that, um, that image of, of some of the things that left behind certainly is some of the stuff that we've seen on uh, on YouTube. There's, um, I know that there's at least one uh, YouTuber that visits all around the world these kind of abandoned sites, whether it's an amusement park or an old mansion belonging to somebody famous or whatever it might be. And uh, yeah, that's so I think some of those images that he covered in his videos then I saw in, in your photos, Chris. So it was mm. all of those must, uh, all sorts of thoughts as well and reflections. When you're seeing that, 
Yeah, when when we got the trip out, we parked up, and the first place we went to was the um, hospital. Um, again, quite a major part of the um, the TV series. Um, this particular building, and in most cases there, you're actually not allowed in them. Um, they say that, and there are um, police around that try, you know, stop you from going in these locations. There are a few locations that are not too bad, but some, some they try to stop you. Mm. And you, you have to be wary of including your guide in your pictures. They'd rather you didn't. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, that, was, that was one of the requests in one of the buildings. And, um, but the, the hospital itself, although in the past I've seen pictures inside, uh, we weren't allowed in that one. And partly the, the main reason is in the basement of the hospital is where the firefighters um, actually congregated and left their uniforms. Now, these are highly radioactive in the basement there. Um, I'm told that they've now sealed those up. Um, but um, that was one of the, the, the more poignant areas um, uh, when, you're, when you're told that, that you probably wouldn't want to go there anyway and see some of that inside that, that building. Yeah. But, but from the outside, a lot of it is just overrun in terms of um, trees and shrubland and bushes, etc. That's that's just taking over, you know, going through the windows and and even starting to grow inside the the building itself. From what we can see, well, wow. yeah, um, and um, you then um, take a, a tour around um, a few more of those. Um, buildings and uh, as you can see in some of the pictures the there is the supermarket I think that was one of the one of the things that made it stand out for Pripyat across the Soviet Union is they had one of the first supermarkets that had aisles and shopping baskets for people to put food in to actually buy. It's a very western theme to that compared with perhaps how it was in other places. Yeah um, not, not like that across you know, in, in most places in the Soviet Union, and, and shows um, the privileges, I guess you could call them that, um, that they had in this location. Yeah. Um, very nice um, sport um, stadium. Uh, they had a football stadium there. Um, they had a sports complex, basketball, swimming pool, um, all sort of Olympic standard in, in terms of that. But they had restaurants. Um, the sort of things that we, you know, um, had every day, um, which, which generally they didn't get across the Soviet Union, this, this location did. And to see them um, in pictures, which uh, I managed to get hold of a few, that how they originally looked, how they look now, is just incredible. Um, and how, if you leave something just to deteriorate, how quickly they can deteriorate. Okay, it's taken 30 years, but nature will take it back yeah yeah if left alone uh, that's what will happen mm, absolutely what sort of other areas did you get to explore chris in uh, in the city um so the the um the other areas that we sort of uh were then sort of taken to i mean sam had long this walk took us it, it, it was several hours and um, funny enough, I counted the number of steps, and we did something like twenty-seven thousand steps over that day. Whoa! So that was a thirteen-hour <laughs> round trip. Um, quite a lot of walking, um, particularly uh, around Pripyat. Um, that's, the, that's three good days beautiful. worth for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it was, it's, a, it's a, a long day, um, but I, I think to be fair, you don't realise that you're doing it um, because you're so. Uh, absorbed in the um, the situation, yeah, and uh, you, you're following this small group of people around. Uh, it was fascinating. But the the other areas um, we went and saw was the, the amusement park, and, and that's one of the more famous um, sets of pictures that have come out. The kindergarten, and um, what I wasn't aware of at all, and which we'll come to later, is the Dugar radar, mm. um, which was deep into the forest area. So, Just a, a yeah. quick, quick one on the the weather, Chris. Were, were, were you blessed with good weather? I think the photos lent themselves to that. But was it generally good? Yeah, very lucky. Um, it, it wasn't cold at all. Um, didn't rain. A bit cloudy. But in, in general, we were really lucky with the weather. 
Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pleased it didn't rain, uh, at least because you would have got very wet and so on. And maybe we wouldn't have got to where we got to in some cases. Um, but we were, we were quite lucky with that. Um, do, do you know if they have a season in terms of allowing visits there, or did, did, did that was that made aware at all? Or? Um, I, I don't. I've not looked in, into that that level of detail. Uh, I would imagine you know uh, winter months um, can be uh, a bit more severe there. Yeah. Um, it, it, but um, I imagine uh, it, it's very similar to our our type of weather. So so I would I would suggest that summer months would be better. Uh, in terms of visiting, good, definitely. Yeah. So was that that was uh, so you spent a fair amount of time there. Did did a healthy number of steps and took a lot in there. Um, yeah. And then, so was that was that the point where you moved on to the radar area, Chris? After that, um, was that a, the amusement? The amusement part was um, for me was the highlight. That I was looking forward to. It, it's something when you look look back at the urban explorers that we described in, in sort of the, um, the YouTubers and the pictures that came out early. Um, that's something that not many cities had. Um, it was something again for the for the privileged sort of uh, people of that city. Um, and it had the you know the big wheel, uh, bumper cars, uh, and various other. Um, amusement for them to use. The fascinating fact was that when the disaster took place, um, it was just before, it took place on the 26th of April, but just before their big USSR May Day celebrations, and the amusement park was due to be opened on the 1st of May. And as we understand it, literally four days days later, and as we understand it, the amusement park was opened sort of the day after, maybe a day or so after the disaster took place, because they couldn't, they didn't want the workers going to work and, and um, you know, doing, seeing what was going on around the area. They opened it up early, and the amusement park, as we've been told, was only ever used for one day. Well, there's something in that. So, yeah, that's a, again another poignant uh, memory of that. Um, you know, just brand new uh, amusement park for for these people. There are pictures, there are small um, videos at the top taken by some people of it being open, um, but literally just for that one day. And um, going there and getting pictures taken and actually seeing, you know, getting pictures of myself and my friend David. In that area was was a um, was, was the highlight because it's just it it represents the if you like it's been one of those um, pictures that's been representative of the disaster uh, ever since that time. Yeah. Well, that's uh... and, and and in fact it was there was uh, a maintenance crew there while we were working. They 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 do they do check over all of these sites just to make sure they are safe for people to to wander around in. And there was a maintenance crew uh, making sure that there wasn't nothing that was loose or could, you know, it was, it was all in good good condition. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's deteriorating every day, uh, but they're making sure that it's in a, in a, a good state. Just one thing on, uh, it's obviously you went as part of a trip, but the payment that you made up front, that, so that, that, just to recap really, that was everything. You didn't have to pay any additional fee once you got closer to, you know, the reactor or to enter the city or anything like that. Was that all done as part of that no. package? Yeah, all done part of the package. Mm. Yeah. I just say, I know it's not, it's not like a, an amusement park or whatever theme park where you go and pay and, 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 you know, spend, spend your money once and then to see all the sites. I know it's not that cause it's, it, it, that's no, not no, no. Set but, up uh, yeah. <clears throat> it's really, you're paying for the minibus journey, the guides and, yeah. I guess there must be some sort of fee that you're paying for the upkeep as part of that journey into the, the exclusion zones, et cetera. Yeah. So, so there are, they are making some money out of it, but not a great deal of money in, in, in terms of uh, what we got out of it for that day, I don't mm-hmm. think. I think looking online, you can book private tours and they can be anything from 100 to 200 pounds. You know, if, if you're doing all this separately, 
Yeah. You know, just booking your flights, booking your transfers, etc. I think you could probably do it for a similar amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you, you know, or, or you, you, and again, depending on how private tour you wanted, um, you could probably pay a bit more. Yeah. I know sometimes that they say if there is a dedicated tour company that can do the various approvals, permissions, uh, author, authorizations and stuff, it's worth doing that. I think often they'll, yeah. they'll have more clout and perhaps a, a, an option to, to speed things up more than an individual, you know, Joe Bloggs from London or whatever, try to get a trip there. They're under their own steam. You know, if it, if it was a travel company with certain credentials, they're, they're probably going to do it quicker and easier. So it's in terms of the, the kind of admin and aggravation and time, if you see a package, it's probably going to be better to just jump on that really, particularly if you get the pricing that you got. So, Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're going to somewhere that's previously been inaccessible and um, you don't know what the regime is like and so on, I think organised tours are the way to go. I wouldn't recommend going off-piste, particularly in that area, because there are, you know, um, what they call the secret police around and Mm -hmm. so on. So if you were looking at trying to get off-piste, it's not recommended. Um, but you, you're always going to get people who want to try that sort of thing, but uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. No. Yeah. Good. So, so, so where did you go next? So so coming from uh, the amusement park, we had a, a small drive out, and this was on the way, and they said this, that, that they were going to take us to the, the Dugar radar, and that was that was the surprise part of the trip. Um, but on the way, um, they pulled off the main road, um, to take us to the kindergarten. Now, I, again, I'd seen pictures online um, and was hoping you would see it um, because of its poignancy and so on. But this is a, you know, this is a what we would call a nursery type uh, place. Kids probably from two up to I don't know six or seven, perhaps. And again, was just abandoned, uh, leaving all of their toys, their coats. Um, Everything, all their um, pictures they had on the wall, um, even their little um, boots and shoes they had at the school, were all left yeah. at the school. Um, that was uh, very, very moving. It was uh, very poignant. Uh, again, um, just to see it left there. Uh, what, in, in some ways, you would have thought by now a lot of these places would have been cleared out and so on, but they haven't been. I mean, it, it, lots of photographers have gone there and taken the pictures that I've taken um, in different ways, and mm. it's all still there. There has been some vandalism gone on right across Pripyat and, and these places, but in, in the main part, a lot of what's just been left there for 30-odd years has just been left there as it is, and just, just covered in dust. And, and it's... Uh, it is a very poignant part of the, um, the trip. Um, plus also seeing, um, I think a lot of the schools do have World War II uh, memorials as well. And this, this place had one uh, outside of it. So I think that's, although we see them scattered about our cities and towns and so on, um, a, a lot of theirs are sort of closer to schools just to make sure that people are, are um, remembering what went on. Yeah, indeed. It's uh, I, I know we did a trip to Berlin um, a few years back and the Soviet War Memorial, I think there's a couple of them there actually in the city centre. And apparently it was built so quickly, it was built before they had time to get approval to build it. Uh, the Russian soldiers just, just did it. Um, and it was, uh, but they, they do um, make a point of remembering those who gave their lives. And uh, yeah, I guess obviously that theme carried through there. Mm. So where, where did you uh, where did you head after the kindergarten, Chris? Was so, that so the, the next place again was the the Duga radar. Um, this is what they call. We're going to the secret place. Is way the guides <laughs> described it. The secret missile detector. Um, it was on the way out of the uh, exclusion zone, um, quite deep into a to the forest. I mean, there was we probably travelled a good sort of half an hour, forty five minutes. Uh, deep into the forest, really, on both sides uh, as we went through. And again, even when we popped up, we couldn't see anything. Um, so we took a, a five, ten minute walk uh, through the woods. 
and came across this um, sandy soiled area, but it suddenly opened up. And there was this huge, huge radar. Um, it stands 150 meters tall uh, and 700 meters long. And actually, it's only about 15 meters wide. So it's just, it's just a massive um, structure that I've never seen the like of before. Uh, deep into the forest that you couldn't actually see from where, even where we parked up. So I'm trying That's to get some sure. sense of scale and thinking of people who might be more used to feet and yards and things. But I mean, if, if you yeah. think of the 100 meters track for the athletics, you're adding half again and then standing it upright to get the height. Yeah. And you can kind of visualize that. And then the 700 is what, half a lap? <laughs> so again, uh, yeah. somehow visualize half of that, you know, oval shape of a rough oval shape of a track. And that's the length of it. So that, that can help understand the, the sheer size and scale of that thing. Yeah, it was just amazing. I, and even with wide-angle lenses that I'd, I'd taken with me, I couldn't get it all in. I actually had in my bag a fisheye lens, which I did take, because um, you can get some different uh, views of things. It's just something I like doing. And I managed to get most of it in using that. And uh, some of the pictures, if you, if, you, if you care to take a look, uh, managed to get a lot of that in. And if you look really, really closely, uh, my friend David is standing at the bottom of this, and he's six foot three, and he looks tiny, tiny um, compared to the, the height of this, the size of this uh, structure. Amazing. Mm. It was it was designed um, to uh, detect intercontinental missiles coming from the west uh, as, as an over-the-horizon radar and would give um, the, the Soviet Union some sort of 20 minutes, half an hour warning that missiles had, had uh, been sent their way. So they um, would then do the alert from there to the rest of the nation, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And, and I think it was built in that area, and that's partly why um, so many reactors were being built, um, because of the power that it needed to actually operate. And, and during its operation, um, from I think it started being built in the early 70s and, and was online from about 70, 1976 and was online till December 1989. Um, we, we knew it, or the West had, had um, named it the, uh, the woodpecker. It actually was so powerful, it was interrupting TV and radio signals across Western Europe, uh, and it sound the interruption sounded like a woodpecker, and that's how it's got its nickname. Wow! So, so, it, so it was operating all through the disaster, and it was only really the kind of I'll say the fall of communism as we knew it, and the Berlin Wall and all that stuff uh, that was ha taking place in Europe in in that in the late eighties and I guess into the early nineties. So yeah, that that was absolutely. really where they changed tack a bit and thought, right, well, we, you know, we don't need this as much or for now. Um, and there's probably other ways of detecting things nowadays, but some. Yeah, uh, that, but but and, and a second one was supposedly built in Siberia as well. So this thing was, you know, um, used, and there may have been other models of it. Um, but yeah, I think um, December '89 it, it, it stopped, and I would imagine that. Um, probably due to the collapse of the Soviet Union, to say the least, and probably more, more likely because of the disaster in that area, a lot of those, the reactors and the power just wasn't available, they shut it all down. Yeah. So, it, but I, I think um, that was, I would suggest the disaster was really the prelude to the collapse of the Soviet Union as it stood. I know you had to put in more and everything else uh, taking place, but I think that was one of the first um, issues that then um, the Soviet Union just couldn't handle because they left Ukraine really to to handle it themselves, sort of abandoned them to, to a degree. So, so was that after that trip? I guess that's getting quite late in the day. Then is it, Chris? After you went to the radar, was that? Yeah, so this is probably about um, five, six o'clock in the evening. After leaving about seven, so it, it then back into the to the the minibus out to uh, the checkpoint and at that checkpoint it, it's where they do give you a good thorough going over with a number of different um, 
detection uh, bits of equipment. Um, again, you'll see some pictures. There's a, a machine you have to stand in, uh, hands and feet, and uh, it checks it, it you over uh, before you leave the area. Mm. And then they go over the minibus as well. Um, it goes on to almost like a way bridge. And it, it looks like a way bridge, but then they go inside and out of it with various detectors just to make sure that the, the van is all right to proceed as well. Yeah, so good good and well controlled then. So that, that yeah. I mean, so that's you described the number of steps you did, but it, it does sound like a really comprehensive journey through all manner of things from the history to what nature can do to the politics and that kind of regime impacts on it all. Uh, but you were blessed with good weather and you took a, a, a number of photos to record you know what you saw does it just sounds like a fantastic day chris and well worth it being one of those odd days that we sometimes get when we go on travels you know you, you kind of just get caught up in it and love every minute of it i would imagine yeah i i think um it stems from having a fascination of it at that time yeah. being the, the tv you know it's brought to life again by the by the tv program um and the way the day was structured was um, well organised um, and it felt safe. Uh, no time did I feel that we, you know, in an area we shouldn't have been and so on. And um, gives you an insight into something that you just wouldn't normally, you know, have uh, the opportunity to do. Yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased my friends saw saw the trip because uh, it's not something I, I went searching for. Um, I've always hoped that uh, you would want to see these places, but you think they're going to be sort of shut down and away from it. I have, to be fair, I think recently I've heard that they've even opened it up a bit more and you can actually get into the, the sort of control rooms and things like that as well. They take, you know, special precautions, but they've opened up the actual sarcophagus area and, and so on. It's certainly so well controlled now mm. that they're showing you even more. So... Uh, those that are a little bit more adventurous can uh, uh, see what else they can see at the same time. That's great. I mean, it certainly fired up my interest in Sue's as well. So, so that was uh, the end of that day, and then you you were able to have uh, an additional day out the following day. Is that right? Yeah. So, so basically, the, you, 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 we flew out on the Wednesday. Um, Thursday, we had the trip ranch at uh, Chernobyl itself. Uh, Friday was a free day at the time, and then we fly, we would have flown back on Saturday. Um, so while we were there and not knowing anything at all about Kiev and so on, um, we thought, well, why don't we find ourselves a guide, a private guide for the day to take us around? Because I'm sure there'd be lots of fascinating places. Um, but it's not like a lot of the European capitals that we know and love. Um, it's not something that I'd looked into in the past and, and didn't really know a lot about. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, before we went out there, uh, searched through uh, TripAdvisor, um, looked on there for um, see if there was sort of some guided tours uh, and came across it. There are several. You can take you know, group tours and so on, but uh, one stood out as a, a private tour. Um, and we looked at uh, doing that and we came across um, a fantastic lady, Slava, who took me and uh, my friend David on this um, tour of the major major parts of Kiev, including they've got a good um, uh, metro system, and um, it's, it's only a few lines, but um, it boasts the deepest um, underground station in the world. All right, good uh, otherwise, yeah, um, otherwise known as yep, otherwise known as Arsenia Station, which is actually um, Arsenal. Um, and as you know, it's my favourite team, so I'll get that in there at the same time. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, 105 metres deep. Um, we travelled up two, three very long escalators, and there's a couple of pictures there um, that show how deep that was. And um, as, as it was built by the Soviets, it is quite ornate in some places. So, yeah, well worth um, a trip on the, the uh, metro system. And it can get you to much quicker than the uh, cabs and um, buses, etc. If you can understand how they work um, uh, across the, the city. 
great idea with the guide. So can I ask how much the trip cost? So, so the, guide? the guide cost us um, for the full day. So we met at 10, finished at about half past four, I think it was five o'clock, um, £84. Pounds. Each person, or is that just that was the no, that, price? Of... That, but that would have been up to three people you could have had on that tour. That's very good. So, yeah, uh, amazing. The only thing you pay extra if we went into any of the monuments and churches that you have to pay for, you then pay for her at the same time. Right. And at, and at the most, I think there, you know you're talking two or three pounds entrance fee. And actually, uh, we only did it. Yeah, yeah in some ways, I, I guess it's an investment because you're. You're going to someone who knows the area who can then communicate to you exactly what it is. So for one day, uh, you're going to get value for money because you're going to be showing what's what's worth seeing. You know, you, you've got your camera and all that sort of stuff. So they'll they'll bear that in mind, I'm sure. So sounds like a... a yeah, and, and very very much if you get a, a, a single person doing it for you, um, they can tailor that for, for you. So when we met up, I mean, there was a basic outline and itinerary for the tour, um, which looked great in itself, but we wasn't ones for going in. There are many orthodox cathedrals and churches across um, uh, Kiev, mm-hmm. but we didn't necessarily want to go in every one of them. No. Um, a lot of the a lot of the uh, the walking and so on is is all very close together. It's quite a hilly area. But it was all um, all quite close together, so it was just a the odd stop on the on the train. Or we did get on a bus as well, uh, which is a little little local bus. Um, and again, these things are you know they don't cost much at all. Um, so and and it was just it just that experience was was worth it. Yeah, doing that. Again, another thirty thousand step day. <laughs> so it was it was quite full on in terms of the walking around and, and coming across the sites and a lot of um, military uh, memorials and sites as well. Uh, huge um, sites uh, that they um, almost like museums where they house a lot of the military equipment and trucks and planes and that sort of thing. Uh, we came across a few of those as well. So. It's quite a big city, um, home to around three to four million residents, depending on where they're, uh, um, uh, you know, housed. Lots of tower, Russian-type tower blocks uh, on the outskirts of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but very cosmopolitan. You know, when you're wandering around and you're you're in an area where there's lots of restaurants and bars, um, it looks very European. I would say it's it's quite old, and they've got some buildings that are over fifteen hundred years old, um, and um, with over two thousand historical sites of interest. Yeah, I, it, 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 there's a lot to see, and and obviously that doing it the way you've done it sounds like a really good idea. So I think uh, we'll we'll put as much detail as we can in terms of links, and you know, try and help people find. Uh, similar things or similar options into the show notes that's going to be something that we'll just do following up before we publish uh mm. but overall chris uh, that just sounds like a, a wonderful trip so i think takeaways would be probably a really good pair of walking shoes <laughs> yeah uh, i definitely recommend that a hope of good weather but we probably have that wherever we go uh, maybe pick your time of year because it if it's if it's like the UK you could end up with um you know perhaps some very hot temperatures in the middle of the summer and <coughs> excuse me much colder in the winter but yeah so like any trip do your preparation um but i i think you know the fact that it was done on a groupon deal and for those who don't know groupon they often do these where you get a really good value for money offers uh but you know these these actual offers are normally, or the actual trips and things are normally available. You know, via the company direct and, and that kind of thing. Anyway, Groupon is just an additional vehicle, I suppose, the way that the way, way they can promote it and sell it. But I mean, it really does. It's, it sounds wonderful. Uh, it's something certainly again, Sue and I have have talked about, and we thoroughly enjoy the series and feel that you know we you know we're only in London. It, it would be a similar kind of style trip to you to the one that you went on so uh i am a fan um really appreciate you 
coming on and telling us about it, Chris. So that that's uh, something we're very grateful for. Uh, so we'll we'll do the various links. Um, in terms of yeah. your photography journey, so what sort of things are you going to be working on in the in the coming weeks and months? Um, so I've recently invested in uh, new, new equipment. Mm-hmm. I think we discussed that before. Um, so looking to to get out and using that, I think. Uh, I'm settling down onto much more of the landscape type um, pictures. That's that's my favourite type of pictures. But I also enjoy uh, doing the, the portraits and the challenge of getting portraits just right. Mm-hmm. Um, but always open for uh, new challenges. Um, recently done um, uh, some uh, had an opportunity to take some pictures um, in the London Museum of uh, Steam and Water over a queue, which uh, enabled me to produce a, a mini story as well. That was fascinating. Uh, that's something that I've not done before. So always open to new challenges, but my favourites are uh, sticking to the landscapes and um, getting getting some, getting better at portrait work. So we'll, we'll put your links on. Uh, am I right in saying, I think, Chris, that we we're, all, the, all the information from TRIPS is on your Facebook page? So we can yeah, there's, to that. There's... So that should be publicly available. Well, publicly in terms of you need to be on Facebook uh, to get to it. I think. Yeah, it'd be appreciated if, if if you if you like the page and, and you, you search down all, all the links. Hopefully, you're going to share the links yep. uh, to each section. I think there's about six different sections, uh, so that I could um, you know, give pictures uh, for each area as well. But thoroughly recommend it um, if you want somewhere off the beaten track, uh, somewhere not too far away, but um, it's safe. I felt very safe while we were there. And um, for a nice long weekend, highly recommend it. Great. And uh, once again, thanks very much, Chris. Really appreciate that. And that thanks will for be. Me uh, on. No, most welcome. And that will be the end of episode 29 of Phil's Photography Journey podcast. And I'll be getting back to you very soon with one of my normal episodes, well, whatever that is. But thanks very much. Take care. Speak soon.